to Write to Life Michigan's Life Beat podcast. I'm your host, Anna Visser. Today, we are going to be doing a feature on a case that I'm sure many of you know about. I personally didn't know about it until I started working at Write to Life of Michigan, but I think that it is an equally important case to talk about um, compared to what we normally talk about on here. And so I wanted to bring it up again. Um, It's happened in 2005, and I still think that it's really prevalent today especially, and we we should continue to talk about it. And so the anniversary of this case was on April 2nd, and it was the 17th anniversary. And so this is going to be on Terry Schiavo's case and ultimately her death. So I just want to start out by saying um, that this case, I think, really resembles kind of the shift that society made towards their treatment and their feelings of people with disabilities. And this kind of brought to life, you know, different perspectives of people with disabilities and um, our lack of understanding of people with disabilities. And so I think this case is really important and has kind of been a landmark case, got a lot of publicity, a lot of media when it was happening in the 1990s and into the 2000s. And so I want to bring it back up again and keep talking about it because it is really important. And it was also the anniversary of this case in the beginning of April. So just to get into a little bit of the history, the background of this case and kind of who Terry is. So Terry was a 26-year-old woman. She was married to Michael Schiavo. I believe they got married pretty young. She was either 19 or 20. And so just some things about Terry. She was known to be very outgoing, and she worked um, as a receptionist in an insurance company. Everyone seemed to love her. Michael's family, her husband seemed to love her. And everyone said she was very outgoing and just a lively person. She grew up in, with two siblings. And um, it was also known that she grew up pretty overweight. And this is kind of important when we get into her medical issues that she was having. Um, but before she went, right after she graduated high school, she lost a ton of weight. Um, went on a diet through her doctor. And then later on, it was kind of found out that after she had lost this initial weight, she seemed to have struggled from an eating disorder or an alleged eating disorder. Um, And so that was kind of something that is important in the case later. So getting into her medical crisis, one night in 1990, Michael is the only person who witnessed this happen and is the only person who has, who can share details of it because he was the only one there. So Michael was sleeping. He heard Terry collapse or he heard a, a noise and went over to her and she was in cardiac arrest. They said that her heart or she received no oxygen for five minutes, making her have severe brain damage. It took the paramedics an hour to get her stable before they could take her out of the house and bring her to the hospital. 
Um, they determined through an investigation, obviously, because she's so young and typically people that are pretty young don't go into cardiac arrest. They did an investigation to see why she had gone into cardiac arrest. And they found that there was no foul play. There's no foul play with Michael. Nothing like that of that sort. And so she actually spent 44 days in the ICU and then they were able to take her home. And so kind of the state of where she's at now is that she is disabled. She has some brain damage, but she's not brain dead. She still is responsive. They have given her a normal lifespan. She's going to live a normal amount of years that anyone else who is healthy would live. She's not in a coma and she's not hooked up to any machines other than a feeding tube. They are able to take her home. She lives with her husband and her parents, the Schindlers, and her two siblings. They live there for a couple weeks, I believe. And that's kind of when things got a little hard for this family because it's it was hard to take care of her. And so she ends up going into a nursing home where she can have around-the-clock care and her family doesn't have to, you know, drop everything and care for her and it's really hard for them to do anyway. And so she was able to go into her nursing home where she can receive the medical care that she needs and someone can be with her constantly. Kind of when all of this is happening, when she's in the ICU and right when she's leaving, Michael's lawyer, who is also one of his very good friends and knew both Terry and Michael very well, he suggests that he files a malpractice lawsuit against Terry's OBGYN and her general practitioner. And this is where the, the bulimia, the eating disorder, comes into play because this lawsuit was claiming that her two doctors failed to recognize that she was that she had an eating disorder that she was hiding. If they had recognized it, they could have tested her potassium levels, which were extremely extremely low. They believe this played a role into why she went into cardiac arrest. Michael files this lawsuit, but first to do that, he has to become her legal guardian. He does this. He applies to become her legal guardian so he can sue on her behalf. You know, this is a very trying time for this family, and no one really knows what to do. One can assume that your husband would be your legal guardian. I believe there was some speculation that Terry's parents didn't know that Michael was going to become her legal guardian, and they felt like there was some some hidden intention behind this. But from Michael's perspective, he was doing it just so he could decide things for her and he could sue on her behalf and there was just one main person that was making their decisions for her and it wasn't a whole family that was trying to do all these things where it could be confusing. This case, the theme throughout it is that it was very controversial. There was a lot of tension, a lot of uh, miscommunication, a lot of misinformation. That is kind of the theme throughout it. But anyway, Michael becomes her legal guardian, sues on her behalf. These two doctors who supposedly missed her eating disorder. What happened with that, that was in 1992. And so this was 
two years after she had collapsed. And so he sues for, I guess Terry sues for $20 million for malpractice. And this was due to the potassium levels. And then one of the doctors who was her general practitioner, he settled and he paid them some money to settle. The OBGYN went to trial because he did not want to settle. They Terry ended up getting a million dollars from this lawsuit, and then Michael got six hundred thousand um, from the lawsuit as well. This was in nineteen ninety two and nineteen ninety three. The medical trust fund was opened for Michael. Lots of things happening, lots of moving parts, money involved, and obviously at the beginning with all of these medical bills. I believe they had over a million dollars in medical bills. And so they were suing these doctors in hopes of getting the funds to pay for her medical bills. And so they did win. Kind of throughout all of this, there was some some tension with Michael and her parents, the Schindlers. And so this is kind of where it all kind of where it starts with the Schindlers obviously loved Terry. That was her daughter, and they wanted to protect her. They loved her even though she was disabled. They felt like she, you know, there there wasn't, she was still fully a human. You know, there was, she deserved any right anyone else had. Her parents protected her through every single aspect of this, and this is kind of where the Schindlers and Michael, their relationship fell apart and they weren't really working as a team anymore in Terry's best interest. And so this first happened when Michael withheld treatment from Terry for an infection. In response to this, once her parents found out, they filed for guardianship of Terry so that Michael could not make these decisions for her anymore. Ultimately, it was decided that he would keep guardianship, but he was ordered that he had to let them know, let them give them medical information on her so that they were also aware what was going on. Because they didn't know that he was doing this until he had already been doing it. In 1998, they Michael filed to have her feeding tube removed. This case kind of was drawn out um, just because of some different laws that were going on in Florida. Um, and essentially what he filed was not to was to have her medical care removed, not necessarily her feeding tube, but her medical care. And so this case stretched out into 2000. And also some just some other background information was going on. The family was really falling apart at this point. Um, there wasn't really a unit team that was taking care of her and that was on the same page. And this also, Michael had several girlfriends throughout this time, even though he was still married to Terry. And so that definitely played a role in all of this. He actually fell in love with a lady named Jody. They are, they got married and had some kids together, um, and he also dated other girls before her as well, and so I believe he started dating girls around 1992. She collapsed in 1990. These are little details and little facts, but they all create this big picture of what exactly happened to Terry and how we got to this point in the U.S. and just in the world in general where 
the court system where Michael, where half of the country was okay with committing a crime of ultimately killing her, everyone was okay with it. There wasn't, there was, you know, it was kind of like how it compared to today, how you have the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement. It's very divided. It's very divided. And um, that's kind of what you start to see in this case is this divide of right to die or the right to let or the right to live um michael i think it's important to note that michael felt like her feeding tube should be removed because he thought his wife wouldn't want to live like a vegetable for the rest of her life she wouldn't want that for herself he kind of referred back in their relationship to a conversation that they may or may not have had we don't know because we obviously weren't there that she was saying she didn't want to live like that. And if that were to happen to her, she would not want to just be a vegetable. And I think this was kind of the perception that a lot of, you know, media and the public and just the country in general got people that were involved was that she was a vegetable. When in fact, there are videos, witnesses, her family, her friends, they can they have told different interviewers the public in videos and in pictures you can see it on several occasions she was not a vegetable she wasn't in a coma she was responsive but she was very disabled and so it comes down to it does a disability make someone less human did terry deserve human rights and obviously we know of course she did disability does not determine how human you are and what rights you deserve and so at this point most the public thought that she was a vegetable and this is kind of the other side that was fighting for her right to die was putting it that way that she didn't have any any meeting in life and she was just laying there and there was nothing going on and she wasn't having a fulfilling life when, like I said, there were so many instances where people proved that that was wrong. The media played a big role in this. Um, they didn't have a lot of information on her condition, which was limited brain function, but she was still there. She wasn't, she wasn't a vegetable, and um, the media didn't really know that Terry was responsive at all. They didn't know that she laughed and that she spoke a few words and that she w interacted with people and continued her relationships with her family and that she wasn't just laying there drooling that she was you know she was she deserved every right that a human had because she was human and just because she had a disability meant nothing this case actually between michael and the schindlers got national coverage because it was kind of the first big case where um, it wasn't really a crime in a lot of people's eyes to kill Terry. This, Like I said, this was kind of a shift in society of, well, people have the right to die too. And so um, because of this national coverage, different political um, figures like Jeb Bush, who was the governor of Florida got involved and he wanted to protect Terry's rights as a human and so he got involved in the case 
he was also very Republican. People took this as a political move and kind of associated his move in protecting her with their negative outlook on him and his politics. And so that kind of affected the case, um, unfortunately, in a negative way because people just made it political and we can we can obviously relate to that a lot because um we see it every single day abortion is made political all the time and it shouldn't be it, this was kind of the start of this case becoming political of two sides kind of splitting off kind of after he got involved there was Terry's law was created in Florida like i said michael was trying to get her feeding routine feeding tube removed. He was successful in that. And um, Terry's law stated, you have to give her feeding tube back. So they reinserted it. This was in 2003. And then um, actually there was another time where he tried to get it removed also, but he was, um, her family was still fighting for her and still there for her. They got her feeding tube back for her. And so then this case went to the federal courts and Congress was debating on Terry's case. This was in 2005. Congress ultimately decided to save her. Eventually, a judge, Judge George Greer, he ultimately ended up deciding that from court order to take away her tube and to dehydrate her to death. And so on March 31st in 2005, she was dehydrated to death. It took 13 days for her to pass away. I listened to several podcasts and read several things about this case because like I said, I didn't know a lot about it before working here. It was kind of before my time. And so a lot of the the um memories that people give from this case is they remember Michael's lawyer friend going out and telling the media while this was all happening in the nursing home that or in the she was in hospice at this time because of the feeding tube that she was dying very peacefully and that she looked beautiful and it was just overall very peaceful when in fact it was probably very painful and the least peaceful death she could have had because um, I think a lot of people maybe when they hear this case and I don't maybe some people don't know this but when when you have cancer um, the natural way for a cancer patient to die is that they stop eating and drinking the last couple weeks of their life this is a very natural way for them to pass away that is not the case for someone who is healthy someone who is like doesn't have cancer and so terry she obviously didn't have cancer she was healthy she had all healthy organs there was nothing wrong with her other than her brain damage so this was very painful for her and there are several podcasts where her family are interviewed and they explain the horrific details of her death and how her mom was watched by the police to make sure that she didn't sneak any water to her daughter. She wasn't allowed to give her chapstick even though her lips were bleeding because she was so dehydrated. This case really is 
really a pivotal point in the right to die and euthanasia and assisted suicide. And um, I think all the little facts working together kind of really paint a picture of exactly how this was, how people let this happen. And, um, you know, I'm not going to speak to the more like Michael and his intentions because we don't know. We don't know if what his intentions were, if he was a bad guy, but I don't know. It, it speaks to and brings to light the idea that people believe that disabled people don't want to live like that, that they would be happier and better off without living with a disability, when in fact, we don't know that because Terry never spoke. And so it was kind of him projecting like the burden that he felt from caring for someone with a disability. And I think a lot of people project that feeling onto people that have disabilities. And so it's important to keep talking about this case, bringing it up in conversation and to remember it every year as the anniversary goes by and to not forget about it because there have been countless cases that have happened after this that have the same thing has happened. There's been so many cases in the UK and in different countries throughout the world where you hear about, you know, maybe a young kid or a baby or just an adult and um, the court has ordered that, oh yeah, they can be killed because of X, Y, and Z. And it's becoming more prevalent in our in our culture of death that we are slowly moving towards. And I think all of these things work together of abortion and euthanasia and the right to die and all of these all of these factors that in, add into our culture of death and keep putting us down this very slippery slope. And it's crazy to think where that could bring us. Um, but talking about cases like this are important and bring people back to the reality of, of you know, remembering people's humanity and, and remembering that it's important to keep talking about this, to keep fighting for it. That is why I wanted to talk about it today. I thought that, you know, maybe a lot of people remember this case happening in real life and remember reading about it in the media and on the news and you're talked about it from your in your families but I thought it was a good reminder to talk about it on the anniversary month that it happened and we can just you know be more conscious of it and be aware that we need to keep fighting for these people and that it's important so I think that's all the time we have for this week thank you so much for joining me and I hope you have a great weekend